Well, good morning, Hope. It's good to be back with you all. Thank you so much for the invitation back. Familiar faces. Um, Scott, I think you'll be very happy. Our Psalm of the Month, we do one psalm um, every month to commit it to memory, Psalm 62. We sang it this morning and it was glorious. So thank you all very much. Um, and if you would open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, I emailed Kurt and asked, um, I gave him a, several options about what to preach from, what text, and um, I think Philippians chapter 2, Kurt doesn't know this, but in God's providence, it's very fitting because it touches on a number of the same themes I just preached about an hour to go to my congregation, so I'm looking forward to bringing God's word to you. Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 11, let's pray now and ask for God's blessing. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you that your word is living and active, still sharper than any two-edged sword, still speaking, still moving, and still changing hearts and minds. We pray, Father, you would do that this morning afresh. We ask that you would remind us what our calling is as Christians, to live as Christ, who is the humblest servant of all. We pray that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would work these attributes into us, all for the glory of him who laid down his life for ours. We pray in the name of our exalted yet humble Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but God's word abides forever. Growing up 25 minutes away from Annapolis, Maryland, in Pasadena, Maryland, uh, I grew up loving all things Navy, a Naval Academy. My dad was employed there for a brief time. He actually was an assistant coach when David Robinson, the admiral, was coming through and, and grew like a foot uh, during his tenure there at Navy. So I always loved it whenever we went over to the Naval Academy for a visit. And one of my favorite things was when we would drive over the Route 50 bridge, if you came at just the right time of day, you might see a glimpse of the Naval Academy crew team as they cut across the Severn River like a knife. Children, if you don't know what rowing is, um, or we call it an America crew, but really it's rowing. It dates all the way back 
to the ancient Egyptian times where a team of rowers would propel a racing shell down the river uh, by means of these long oars on either side. The rowers need to be synchronized. That's the key to their success. Every millisecond counts when it comes to rowing, to crew. If one rower is rowing at his own pace ahead of all the others, the boat's speed will take a dive and the whole team will suffer as a consequence. All of the rowers need to be in sync. There must be a unity about them. And in our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul is calling his Philippian readers to unity, to be unified themselves. Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians during his stay in a Roman prison, most likely in Rome itself. Paul received a gift from the Philippian church by the hand of Epaphroditus, and that supported him during his incarceration. Back then, you had to raise your own funds if you wanted to survive in jail. So the tone of the letter is characterized by, by thankfulness and encouragement. It's called the um, epistle of encouragement. Nevertheless, Paul was aware that like every church, there was a little bit of division. There were some disagreements, some tiffs among the members of the congregation. And if left unchecked, it could tear the church apart. In chapter 4, Paul entreats Euodia and Syntyche, two sisters in the Lord, to agree and to, for the church to help these sisters reconcile. And in chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, Paul acknowledges that there will be some who preach Christ from envy and rivalry and out of selfish ambition, without sincerity. And then in verses 27 and 30, the Paul, Paul exhorts his readers to be different. He says, I know that division is close at hand, but I want you to be different, Philippians. I'm calling you to something better, something better than envy, rivalry, and, and selfishness. I'm calling you to unity. I'm calling you to a synchronization of, of heart and mind, a unified purpose and spirit. But the question really is, how are they to achieve this unity? I don't know about you, but the, the word unity is thrown around a lot lately. Whether it's our elected officials, whether it's the broader culture saying that we all need to be unified, I think unity is a fine thing but it's another thing to tell us how to achieve unity. We all want unity, but I think the question is, how do, how do we do that? How do we pursue unity? In other words, what's the cadence? What's the, what's the pace to which we're all to row and be unified in the church of Christ? Well, Paul's answer is humility. If you all wanna be on the same page, if you wanna be rowing at the same cadence and move forward as one unified church, the way that that happens is through humility. And so what I want us to see from the text this morning is that um, the humility is the key to achieving unity. Paul's instructions to the Philippians and, and the abiding witness to you and me is that humility is the key to unity. And there are going to be two points um, to this morning's sermon. First, we see Paul's exhortation. He calls them to unity in verses one through four. He says, have this mind among yourselves. This is what I want for you, Philippians. But then in verses five through 11, he gives them the example of humility. He points them to Jesus, the great servant, the one who laid down his life for a sheep. So humility is the way to achieve unity. 
We get the exhortation one to four and the example of humility five to 11. Now, Paul grounds the exhortation in verse one in four realities that he knows are invariably true. Four experiences of the Christian life saying, hey, if these are present, then complete my joy. Do what I call you to do. And the four things he points to are these. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if, if encouragement in Christ is a thing, and I think we all know that it is, then, then do what I'm asking you and exhorting you to do. He's grounding it in their experience. Encouragement in Christ. How encouraging is it to know that your sins have been forgiven and that God's not angry? That God's wrath has been satisfied and that when he looks on you, he looks on you in love. That all of your accounts with God have been settled, that the debt's been paid. That there is nothing that will come between you and God ever again. Isn't that encouraging? So if there's that encouragement, do what Paul says. Additionally, he says, if there's any comfort from love, Christians know experientially the kind of comfort that comes from knowing that God loves us with an everlasting love. And that this love is so strong, so enduring, that there will be neither height, depth, Angel, demons, there's nothing under creation, not even our very selves, that can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, if there's any participation in the spirit, and, and we all know that the Holy Spirit is this mark of the Christian life and that his participation in our lives and in our sanctification journey is just an assurance that we are united to God. He's God's gift to us. He's God's seal, his reminder that when we cry, Abba, Father, we know we're heard because it's the Holy Spirit that helps us cry. Believers participate in, we have fellowship with God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's the great thing. We also have fellowship with one another through the Holy Spirit. Haven't you felt that when you came to hope for the first time? that you, you felt that there was something in this local body and you said, now this is the Holy Spirit at work. Here's a spirit of unity. Here's the Holy Spirit with his hands on a group of people. There's something unique here. There's something unique about the Christian church. So Paul says, if you have any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, if you've experienced participation in the spirit personally and corporately as a body, and if there's any affection and sympathy, if there's any affection and sympathy that God has shown to you through Christ, then do what I call you to do. You know, in the movie Spider-Man, um, there's a scene where the superhero's uncle leans over to him in the car before he's about to get out and tells him, with great power comes great responsibility. Any of you children seen Spider-Man? That's the 2002 version with Tobey Maguire. I know there's later iterations, but that, that's good Spider-Man. Um, with great power comes great responsibility. I think the phrase applies to our passage if we substitute the word power with blessings. With great blessings, with the encouragement we have in Christ, with comfort from his love, with the participation of his spirit, with affection and sympathy poured out for us, with these great blessings comes a great responsibility, friends. And so if these things have been lavishly poured out to us by Christ himself, 
then we have a responsibility to do what the Apostle Paul is calling us to do. And what is it he exhorts us to do? To be of one mind. To be unified. To be one people. That's what Paul desires for them most. In verse one, or chapter 1, verse 27, he calls them to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side, that is together, for the faith of the gospel. Uh, this repetition. He wants them to uh, literally being in full accord and of one mind, that last clause, it, it's double unity. I want you as a church to be unified, pursuing a unified goal. Double unity. That's what Paul wants for them. So that's the content of his exhortation. Be unified. But how are they to do this? That's the question, right? How are they to achieve this end? What does unity look like? Thankfully, Paul gets practical. The Apostle Paul gives them tangibles, concrete ways in which they can achieve unity and strive after the goal of Christ's glory in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Negatively, how don't you achieve unity? Don't be selfish. Don't seek your own glory. This has the attitude of, of being rivalrous. Rivals, remember, are people on the other team, not people within your own team. That's how a team goes down. When there is a rivalry, when there is competition between the members of the one team, rivals are those whom you seek to best, those against whom you hope to gain the upper hand. And Paul says this has absolutely no place in the church. If there's any place where we shouldn't find a rat race, it's the church. We're to be together in all things. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, but what? Consider others more significant than yourselves, verse 3 says. This is where the Good Samaritan succeeded, and the priest and the Levite failed. They were all, they were too important. Really, I mean, you, you, let's just think of it. What are the Levite and the priest probably going on to do? They probably got a lot of business to do at the temple. Lots of things around God's worship. They've got big fish to fry. They're, they're very important. They're influential men. And so they don't have time. This is beneath their dignity to stop and, and to help, of all people, a, a Samaritan. Right? But that's what the good Samaritan, um, or to help a, a Jew, forgive me. But that's what the Samaritan God, he considered the needs of that bruised, bloody, and near-death Jew more than his own. He even divested himself. He paid for his lodging and for his healing and, and said, if anything else is incurred, you just charge it to my account. Beautiful. So it follows that we need to consider others more significant than ourselves. And if we do that, we're going to look to their interests, as verse 4 says. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
And that's the real challenge, right? Because I don't know about you, but this last year, I feel like a lot of people feel like they're scraping by. They're barely making it themselves, spiritually, some people materially. It's been a really hard year. The pandemic has brought us all to a place where some feel completely undone and, and they feel like they don't have enough for themselves. But when we consider the needs of others before our own, the questions that we ask ourselves throughout the course of the day change from what do I need, what can I get, to what does my neighbor need, and what can I give? And maybe the coronavirus isn't showing us or, or you know, doing anything new in us, but it's showing us what our problem was long before COVID, is that we put our interests before those of our neighbors. And Jesus is saying, look, putting the interests of other people before your own, I, I know that it's a challenge, but I'm going to show you what that looks like. I'm going to show you by my own example what it means to serve others, even at a tremendous personal cost to yourself. You need to take the form of a servant, which brings us to the second point. We've been exhorted to humility by Paul in verses one through four, but now he gives us the example of humility. He shows us what it looks like. In verses five through 11, Paul takes us to Christ. He offers Christ both as an additional grounds for his exhortation saying, have this same mind among yourselves that you see in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus' ministry is to motivate them, inspire them to humility themselves. And that's what we read in verse five. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Look to him as your guide. And the this in this verse is in reference to all that Paul said in verses three and four. The mind Paul is calling the Philippians to possess is that is one that is purged of pride and that actively looks to address the needs of neighbor. So Paul has exhorted them and tell them, purge yourself of pride, do nothing from selfish ambition, but actively look to address the needs of neighbor. And then he goes to Jesus. The humility of Christ's mind and the outworking of it are laid out for us in verses six through eight. The humility of Christ's mind and the outworking of it, it's laid out for us in verses six through eight. These three verses describe different facets of Christ's humility. You could think of it like a staircase, a descending staircase. With every verse, we see Christ humble himself again and again and again, and even to the point of a cursed death upon the cross. So let's step down with the Lord Jesus in his humiliation. We see the humility of his mind in verse six, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I think this is the, the go-to, it's the home row verses for when somebody says, show me the humility of Christ. Philippians 2, 1 through 11 is the place to go. But in order to really understand the humility of Christ in his acts, we need to understand who Christ is in his person. Because only once we realize how high and how glorious and awesome Jesus is in his person, will we begin to fully understand the gravity and the beauty of his work in his condescension. 
Jesus is in the form of God. As God's son, our shorter catechism says that he is the same in substance, equal in power and glory with the father. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He's the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Christ was God fully at all times during his incarnation and now in his ascended glory. And though this was the case, Jesus never grasped at that. He never seized upon that or leveraged it in his earthly ministry to get his way and to avoid the suffering of the cross. Sinclair Ferguson, Scottish preacher, he, he talks about grasping here in verse six. He says that though Christ, even in his incarnate state, had every right, he had every right to grasp at his equality with God. After all, he is God. He didn't grasp at it like our first parents grasped at that forbidden fruit. That was at the root of their error. They grasped for the fruit for what purpose? To be like God. To know truth from evil. They wanted to be like God, and so they grasped at an authority and privileges that were not theirs to enjoy. But Jesus, though he had every right to enjoy that, he said, I won't. Though angel glory was due to him, Christ Jesus said, no, he did not play to his privileges. In high school, I had several classmates whose fathers were police officers, and I had heard whispers of this secret society of uh, people who had what are called PBA cards, Patrolman's Benevolent Association cards. And um, what these cards did was if the child of a police officer or a family member of a police officer got pulled over for speeding or for a moving violation or something of the like, when you presented your license, you could also flash this PBA card, demonstrating that you are kin to a police officer. And the hope would be that if you um, have this card handy, they'll either let you off entirely or they'll lessen the penalty of whatever infraction you incurred. Sounds nice, right? Using your association with a powerful individual to get yourself out of a jam, playing to your privilege. Jesus is the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the one who would have every privilege at his disposal. And yet he never played to his privileges. He emptied himself of glory, not divinity, but all the glory and all the pomp and all the praise that he received in heaven. And he chose voluntarily to condescend and to serve you and me. He was humble. He was selfless. He could have called down a, 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 an agent, a, a legion of angel armies to get him off that cross, but he never did it because he wanted to secure your redemption and mine. Such is the humility, such is the love of the Lord Jesus. That's the humility of his mind. But there's also a tremendous humility in his incarnation. In verse 7, you see he's, he's humble in taking the form of a servant. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, alluded to it earlier, but I want to be careful. Jesus did not empty himself of divinity. In the incarnation... Jesus was no less divine 
than he was in eternity past. Uh, the divinity of Christ was not humanized by the incarnation, and nor was his humanity deified. He is two natures, fully God, fully man, in one person forever. But he emptied himself of the glory that he was due. There were some people in the 19th century um, in Germany who believed in what's called kenosis, that Jesus ceased to be divine, that he was a mere human being in his incarnation, but later on he kind of you know, experienced a change in his person and he became divine. But summarize all of it to say, when Jesus emptied himself, he made himself one of no reputation. One of no reputation. The high esteem, the glory that was his, he, he threw all that off. And he took the form instead of a servant. Um, I don't know if any of you wait tables, if you've waited tables, and you'll know kind of a little bit about my experience. Um, because I was, I was a server, servant, whatever you want to call it, uh, back in the day. My wife and I, we were married at 19 and 20. And uh, while I was finishing up college, I waited tables at two restaurants to make ends meet. And I can remember, I was 18 at the time, saving up to marry my wife. And uh, I was working Saturday, which is like the servers, you know, that's our payday. That's when we make our money. And I had a 14 top, a 14 person table sitting at tables 310 and 314. It's, I can still remember it like yesterday. It's burned in my memory. Um, the meal from start to finish was rough. I don't know if these people um, had ever been out to a restaurant before because the, the etiquette that you normally have at a restaurant is, is just altogether absent, right? I was snapped at. I was told to, hey, come here. People just down their drinks. I didn't think a person could drink, um, you know, a Coke as quickly. So I, I just ended up bringing like two Cokes at a time. I worked at Texas Roadhouse. Do you have Texas Roadhouse on the West Coast? No? Oh, you all need to let out. It is the honey cinnamon butter. Um, people come just for that alone. It's fantastic. And it's free. That's the dangerous part. So I just, I'm filling these people full of bread and butter and Cokes, you know, out the years. And um, they racked up a really big bill, $321. Okay. So when it came time for me to pick up the bill, the father handed me a wad of cash and said, your tips in there. And then the 14 people very quickly left the restaurant and I, I counted it all up. The bill was $321. They left me $325. A $4 tip. I don't know what math you observe uh, when you tip, and, uh, but that, that is very low. It is very low. Um, needless to say, I was, I was so angry. Matter of fact, when your wait table's in a restaurant, I had to tip out my busters and my bartender, 3% of sales. So after everything was said and done, I actually paid $5 to wait on these people for two and a half hours. I lost $5, okay? An 18-year-old me, I'm still living at home at this time, I go home and I am incensed. I'm fuming to my mom and dad. I'd say, how can these people do this to me? Didn't they see all the ways that I'd serve them? Who do they think they are? I'd been over backwards for them. I provide the best service. And then my mom, she's super soft-spoken um, and very gentle. But she, she just laid this one-liner on me that I'll never forget. She said, Stephen, do you deserve better than Jesus? I stopped complaining. 
because I, I remembered this text. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. Jesus came to serve and at a tremendous expense to his own self. And here I am grousing about five bucks. I thought I deserved it. I've served and so they're going to serve me in return. But that's the beautiful thing about the incarnation and the humility of Jesus. He served us knowing that we could never fully repay him. That even the obedience that we render, it's not meritorious. We can't pay Jesus back. At the end of the day, we're all just unprofitable servants, right? Doing our duty. But Jesus came and he served and he didn't complain. He didn't go fuming to the heavenly father saying, can you believe these people after all I've done for them? Jesus loves and is patient and serves, knowing that we can't serve him back. So Jesus has been humble in his mind. He's been humble in his incarnation. We also see in verse 8 that he's humble in his death. Being found in human form, just like we are, yet without sin, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And here, friends, is where we get to the bottom of the staircase. He endured not just death at the hands of sinful men, but the cursed death upon a cross. He who hangs upon a tree, let him be cursed. He was willing to suffer and die for sins that he hadn't committed. I don't know about you and me, but when people accuse me of something that I have not done, I will fight them tooth and nail. I'll say you've, you've, you've misrepresented it. That's not at all what I've done. And yet Jesus as a Sheep before his shears is silent, so Christ didn't open his mouth. Because this was the goal all along. To take our shame, to take our bad reputation, our sins upon himself, and to liberate us, to free us from the bondage of sin, and to make us free. To give us his righteousness as a gift. And um, So one of my favorite hymns is What Wondrous Love. What Wondrous Love is This that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Christ was willing from his first breath, first breath all the way to his last to be the humble servant of sinners. This Christ is worthy of praise. What are the consequences of the humility, finally, as we round out, verses 9 through 11? His humiliation, we see, leads to his exaltation. His humility leads to his exaltation. Therefore, as a result of this humility, God has exalted him highly, bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is his reward, his reward for descending to the lower regions of the earth where we are is that he would ascend into the heavenly places. And he's received from the father a name that is above all names. Just like the Old Testament patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God says, I'm going to give you a name. I'm going to give you a name of renown. 
So Christ has this name of renown. There is no one like our Christ. Not one. The, the, the gods of the pagans, they can talk about gods who are high and mighty, but they, they don't have humble gods who came and died to ransom their people. That's unique to Christianity, friends. And so you could say it this way. There is no one with a greater humility than Christ because there is none who descended further than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is as high as it gets. And so because there is none that is as humble as Christ, having condescended from the Holy of Holies in heaven, then there's also no one more exalted than Christ. If Christ is the most exalted, he is the most, or the most humble. He is the most exalted. And that's something to which all of God's people, we, we pursue that instead of our own personal glory. So I want to round out with this application. Paul, coming back to the beginning, he's exhorting the church to humility. How does he ground that in their Christian experience and in the example of Christ? So to, to bring this home to our day, how are we as God's people to be unified? It's through the same humility. It's through that same humility, considering others more important than ourselves as Christ considered our welfare before his own. And, and though Satan will tempt us and say, look, here's the way to exaltation. Um, here, this is how you get ahead. Ambition climbing for the top of the podium, contesting with your brothers and sisters in Christ for first place. We just preached on that this morning in Matthew 20. Um, James and John, they have their mother come, right? If, if you've ever um, coached a sports team, you know what happens. The, the parents want uh, their child, their little future NBA MVP to like be in the game, not ride the bench. And so the parents come and say, hey, take care of my kids. That was how they thought they're going to get ahead in the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus says, no, it's through being a servant. The one who would be first among you needs to be a slave. You, you need to be a person who is willing to serve and not be served. And so that's the same key for us today. Maybe, maybe you struggle and you say, you know, I, not, even, not even simply, but like, I want, what, how, how is a person exalted? Right? Not in the earthly, vainglorious sense, but you could say it this way. Jesus told us, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So if you struggle with ambition, if you struggle to be somebody, to do some great thing, and you think, I, I, I jealously want exaltation, Jesus tells you that exaltation is not yet, but humility is now. And that the way you achieve exaltation is through humility. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. That's the Christian's assurance. And I think that's a comfort to the church and the world today. Because this has been a very humbling time for the Christian church. There's a lot of uh, Christians in the United States that um, I, I think kind of lament, you know, the, the waning influence of the church in the broader culture. And, and, and there are these, these efforts to try and... Bring the church back, back to these glory days, whenever those were. And yet what Christ calls us to is to humble ourselves and cast ourselves upon him. And at the proper time, he is going to exalt us. And so let's trust him and take him at his words.
If you wrestle with this temptation to grasp at exaltation, consider Christ who didn't grasp at his. Christ will exalt his church. He exalts his people, but that comes through humility. So as you all, and I'm very excited for you as a church, getting ready to call a pastor. This is a super encouraging time, I know. Um, But let the Apostle Paul's instructions to you uh, be as evergreen instructions. How is the church to move forward? Through humility. How are we to be unified? Through humbling ourselves, looking to Christ, who humbled himself for our sake. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray you would continue to bless our worship now. We thank you for Christ who humbled himself and pray, God, you'd humble us from the heart that we would make ourselves nothing and make Christ everything to a watching world. Amen.